Okay, so we're continuing our evening series on the Lord's Prayer, uh, which I'll read in a second, just to remind us all of what it is. We've got a subject that um, I don't overly enjoy talking about. We have to uh, approach this on Alpha Course as well, but talking a little about about our enemy, the evil one. Uh, Deliver us from the evil one. Um, It reminds me of a story when I was at Spurgeon's uh, the principal was Nigel Wright, and he writes a lot of books. He writes, re- he writes really good books, very deep uh, theological books, and they're really good. And he's written books like Free Church, Free State, and New Baptist, New Agenda, things like that. And everything he says, you think, oh, they're really good. They're really, really good. And um, he came to college, and he said to us, I've got a bit of a predicament. He said, I said to my mother-in-law that the next book I write will be dedicated to her. And uh, he chose to write the next book, and it was called The Fair Face of Evil. <laughs> so he couldn't dedicate it to her, couldn't he? He was writing about the, the ways and the means of the enemy and uh, what he does and the way he discourages churches. Um, but uh, yeah, it came back to mind when I was preparing it. Now, you might have spotted we should be on temptation, uh, but originally uh, tonight was a CTB service, so we put this in uh, after. So we're a little bit back to front, but we're coming on temptation uh, on the 9th of uh, April. So deliver us from the evil one. So you've got the first slide up there, good. So I'm just going to read um, uh, from Matthew's Gospel, which is uh, the part where we come to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, uh, when they've asked uh, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, asked him how they should pray, this is what he answered. He said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some later manuscripts go on to add the words that we know, for yours the kingdom, power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So deliver us from the evil one. The fact is, as Christians, we are in a battle. Sometimes we recognise that and sometimes uh, we don't, but we are. And I'm going to turn uh, to Luke uh, chapter 4, if you've got your Bibles, and we'll see that Jesus himself uh, was in a battle. We know he was in a battle in a way, but if you think about it, he's, he's, um, he's just had this big affirmation from the Father, this is my son who I'm pleased with and everything else. And then we get to uh, uh, Luke 4, and we see the temptation of Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So an opportune time. He looks for that in us, doesn't he, when we're weak, uh, when we're maybe discouraged, when we're susceptible. He's very good at what he does. 
So we see that Jesus has been led by the Holy Spirit to a place to be tempted. And look at the questions. Straight away, the first thing, what does the devil do if you're the son of God? Puts doubt in his mind, straight away. Just like in Eden, the devil implies, you know, did God really say? He puts doubt over God's word. Jesus had just had public affirmation at his baptism. Yet the devil questioned it. And he does the same with us now, doesn't he? Uh, He questions our identity. Maybe uh, you suffer from doubt. I think most Christians do. When I first became a Christian, immediately after, uh, I thought, well, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? How can I be sure? And thankfully, someone led me back to the word of God. Of course, we have doubts. And then he went on to say, didn't he, uh, uh, for Jesus to perform all the miracles. Nothing wrong in them. We know he did later on. We've heard some tonight. But it was the motive. It was trying to say, you know, you've got to bow down to me. He wanted to give him power. But he said, no, I worship God alone. Want to throw himself from a high point. He said, no, don't get put the Lord your God to the test. And see, the thing is, the devil will always try and make us uh, walk away from the power of the cross. Try and maybe we can do things in our own strength. You see it uh, at funerals. You know, he'll be all right. He's a good man. You know, he helped the old ladies cross the road. Um, or he's always doing good for people and everything else. And somehow they think that's enough. Of course it's not. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's only through Christ and the cross that we can say we're a Christian. So the devil likes to get people to wander away from that. And he does that. He does that. And it's the church's job to tell them uh, that uh, Jesus is the only way. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 9 to 11, Paul describes how discipline in the Corinthian church was to be administered in order that Satan will not outsmart us. For we are familiar with his evil schemes. And Paul's making the point that it's, be sens- it's sensible to be aware of the devil's strategies and methods. And we'll look at some of them tonight. It's not all of them, it's not an exhaustive list. Um, but some of them, what I've noticed in, in ministry. But if I could put it in one line, he wants to undo, or attempts to, everything that Christ has done. He tries to pour scorn on the cross, scorn on the Bible. I mean, the Bible is not really that well respected uh, in society, and even in some churches. He wants to dishonour God's word. He wants to try and dishonour God. And he loves to dishonour Christians. So we need to be aware of his ploys. He wants to undo everything that Christ has done. Where Christ has given real freedom, he wants to bring slavery. He wants to bring despair instead of the joy of being a Christian. Hatred instead of peace. You don't have to look too far. And you can see that he's at work. And with individual Christians, he wants to destroy us or weaken us so that we're no longer effective servants of Christ and his kingdom. His aim for the church is the same. He loves to bring down churches. To destroy it. Totally neutralise its power. It's all bad news so far, but it isn't. Because actually the battle, although we're wrapped up in it, is not ours, it's God's. Matthew 16, 18 from the New Living Translation says, when Peter confesses Christ, says, who do you think I am? He says, you are the Christ. And it's on that confession, the believer's church, that Jesus says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. The devil will try and come against the Lord's church, but it's only if we're weak that he'll have any kind of success. He can't destroy it. But he can have success in a church and it's the Christians that allow him to do it. He can use many weapons, but a lot of the time it's not an outright attack, more of an undermining of defences that God has given us He can be really subtle, he's really good at it. But a battle, therefore, is God's, but it also is ours as well. God uses us 
James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit yourselves then to God. So we need to submit ourselves to God. And it goes on to say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Christians who have a close, regular, living relationship with God present a really big obstacle to the evil one because they're heavily protected. The powerful presence of the Holy Spirit, close fellowship with Jesus, regular habits of reading the Bible and knowing it, prayer, worship, coming together as his church make his attacks more difficult. So therefore, he seeks to undermine all of that and sow doubt and discord. So, uh, slide two. There you go. How does the devil undermine our defences? There's loads of ways. I've put down some here, and I've, just in my readings and, and, my, and my journey. Uh, one of the things I think he does, he encourages complacency. Encourages us to think that we're okay. If we think we're secure and above temptation, we can drop our defences. We can drift a bit from God. When things are going well, uh, we don't need him quite as much, or so we think. When lives are peaceful or untroubled, we can let our guard slip. Comfortable times are sometimes the most dangerous. We're not on our guard. He's also he's happy for people to profess Christianity as long as they don't let it change their behaviour. Complacency. Or complacency of whole churches. A lack of enthusiasm to reach out is a tragic example of collective complacency. Do we share in his mission to seek and save the lost? The devil loves complacency. So he encourages it. And Jesus said uh, harsh words. Uh, to say about complacent church, didn't he? He said, you are lukewarm, and I spit you out of my mouth. Encourages isolation. I spoke about this a little bit this morning. We're more protected when we're in a close and caring fellowship, and we're praying for one another. You ever see those, um, it's normally someone like David Attenborough or someone in a nature program. You ever, you ever, I mean, for me, I put them on, I don't really want to watch this, then I'm not really liking them. But you see, when there's uh, like a lion or something equally ferocious, um, they, they see the, is it the wildebeest? You've got this, all these pictures, it's the wildebeest. And they look for the one that's be, become detached from the crowd and they get him. But when they're in the crowd, very, very difficult. You think they'd get him easy, but they don't. As soon as one becomes isolated, they go for him. And I, I believe that, I've seen that in my ministry. People say, oh, I don't need church anymore, I've got Jesus. Yet, why would Jesus set up the church if we didn't need it? Um, and they, they walk away from the church and end up isolated and they're picked off and it's heartbreaking. Roman soldiers, they had large oblong shields that could overlap so when they marched forward, no one could really get at them. Um, it was almost impenetrable and Christians, as we come together and pray for one another, we can become that, we need to be together and encouraged. Isolation is dangerous and that's why the devil encourages it. He encourages, encourages distractions wants us to get distracted from the mission of Christ. The D-Day lands in 1944. The Allies put a huge amount of effort, you may know this story, into persuading Hitler's forces that the invasion would be in a different place to the planned Normandy sites. So that then the defensive forces would be removed. The devil does the same. He gets us so busy on minor things and so wound up about the small stuff, we lose sight of the big picture and their efforts are compromised. I read a book... um, uh, I, I, I can't remember it's by, it's by a woman, and it's called uh, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. Have you seen this book? Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and it's all small stuff. Most of the things we really worry about is small stuff. When I, when I see some of the arguments that go on in church and distract us, it's mainly small stuff. They're never, very uh, infrequently is it very, very big stuff. 
Yet it distracts us because we have to focus on that and get it sorted out. And in the meantime, we're missing the big picture. So he encourages distractions. And what weapons does the devil use? What is he really good at? Well, first of all, he's good at lies. He will deny truth. The Bible describes him as the father of lies. John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. And that's what he wants. That's what he wants for all the non-Christians. He doesn't really take too much notice until they become a Christian. That's when we realise we're in a battle. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet so often in society, we listen. We ignore the word of God that tells us we've been accepted, forgiven, redeemed, purchased, paid for, free, uh, eternal destiny assured. We think, oh, am I? Does God really love me? Am I saved? And he, he loves that to undermine us. So he'll deny the truth of the word. He denies the truth of sin to Christians, which means we end up trivialising it. Oh, it doesn't really matter. But it does. He denies the truth of who God is. Right at the beginning with Adam and Eve, God was a, a spoil sport. You know, he, he gave them dominion over all of Eden, but he said, don't do one thing, and he was made out to be a spoil sport. And even now in society, we've got permission to do so much, but yet somehow there's still the temptation to do the things that we know we're not supposed to. So he's made out to be a spoil sport, not loving and generous, which is his nature. Or he tries to make us feel that our relationship with God is a heavy burden, that God is somehow cruel and an unfair master. We can't live up to this. That we, and then we tend to rebel, to feel liberated. He loves to sow the seeds of doubt. All distortions that he loves to introduce to his church. And of course he goes after the truth of Christianity. Some people have bought into the lie that the normal Christian life is one long tale of triumph, of joy, huge achievements, but sometimes it's not. Because when they're sold that, the evangelists, you know, come to Jesus and everything will be okay. Well, it wasn't for any of the disciples or the apostles. Um, they all suffered. Um, it wasn't, it's not necessarily okay. What it means is your eternal destiny is secure. And of course you have life in all its fullness now. It doesn't mean to say there's never going to be bumps in the road. And people get discouraged. I've seen people become Christians who have been sold that lie and walk away at the first sign of any hardship. So it's not always triumph, ecstatic joy and huge, huge achievements, although that does happen. And he, can, he gives them the lie that if you're not getting that, then maybe you're second rate, or maybe you're not a Christian at all. All of us have those desert times. We're not always on the mountaintop. I can't sustain it. You know, there are times I feel that joy, and I want to have my hands in the air and everything else, and that's brilliant but I can't sustain it. And there's other times when I'm low. Uh, and I don't want to sustain that, but there are times, and actually they're the times that God, I feel, has spoken me, to me the most. The other thing he loves to do is discourage. Uh, you ever notice that? The discouragement in churches. The Christian life is impossible. You can't live up to it. Well, we know that. That's why we need the cross. You failed badly. You've gone down the road. God will never use you again. It's just a lie. And in church... Uh, we get it. This mission venture. It's impossible. You won't get there. Or the church project. Unrealistic. Evangelism. It's not really... It's, why bother? Or even to each other. Discou- we can discourage each other. And he loves that. He can only do it if we allow him to do it. Or apathy in churches. You know, is the Western church full of apathy? Not all of them. Some are. And it's the opposite. 
of what God says in Romans 12, 11. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor. Serve in the Lord always. We don't want apathy. Nothing worse than an apathetic church that doesn't really care about the mission of God. So what do we do? Need to apply it. Fight back. That's what I put there. I can hardly see that. It's fight back. Put on the full armour of God, which is no great surprise. Let me read it out to you. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always be praying for all the Lord's people. So the first element of our armour. I mean, Paul, when he wrote that, was probably chained to a Roman soldier. And he's probably looking at the armour and thinking about that. And God's giving him the words. But the first element of armour is truth. In verse 14, it's easy to understand. If Satan's the father of lies, deception is high on the list of things uh, uh, that he's going to come against us with. Deception. So many people are deceived, going after other religions, uh, finding other ways, they say, to God. But it's a deception. So we need to make sure that we know the truth, and that we know the truth through the word of God and by the Spirit's revelation of that. We don't question anymore, did God really say? We know he has. God has spoken. And he's been revealed to us in the person of Christ. Then we've got the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate shielded the soldiers, the the warriors' vital organs from blows that would otherwise have been fatal. So we need that that breastplate of righteousness which we realise only comes in Christ. We're clothed in his righteousness. And then we've got the preparation of the feet for spiritual conflict. Uh, In warfare there uh, in those times, the enemy would often place obstacles in their way as they went to war to make them stumble and fall. The idea of the preparation of the gospel of peace as footwear probably means that we need to advance into Satan's territory. There's a journey into that as we tell others about Christ, bringing the gospel. Shield of faith. Satan's sowing those seeds of doubt about the faithfulness of God and his word, trying to make them ineffective. They're not, they're effective. You can see, though, his attack on God's word is bearing some fruit in the world. People don't acknowledge it. Some churches don't. We, were, we, we felt as ministers right at the beginning of the year, we were given the verse of Paul's letter to Timothy, you know, that young pastor in Ephesus, preach the word. Preach the word. And we're determined to do that. The helmet of salvation, protecting the head, our minds. It's a critical part of the, the, the body and our thinking needs preservation. The unsaved person can't get that. They don't know. They're not using their mind. It's not that we need to use our mind and to discern the difference between spiritual truth and spiritual deception. Verse 17 talks about the sword of the spirit. It's the offensive weapon of offence. We attack with that. The sword of the spirit, the word of God. But you can see if he can undermine that in churches, then it's not being used as much. But in my ministry, that's often, often it's been when we read from the word of God that things happen 
spiritual warfare, things happen. And finally, we're told to pray in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. We must have prayer. We must have prayer. Whenever we're in any kind of spiritual warfare, there must be prayer. Prayer with any kind of ministry without prayer is just, you know, words. We must have prayer. Uh, recently, uh, we, we had a really important day as church council, and uh, we came to go here on a Saturday morning, and it was good. It was actually really good. But um, the night before, I felt under a spiritual attack. Andrew was away, um, and uh, I was tossing and turning in bed about three in the morning, which is sort of the normal time. And, but I really felt it. I really, really felt it. I felt the enemy's presence in our house, and I was praying and praying and praying. And awful, for about an hour and a half. And funny enough, I said the Lord's Prayer over and over again. Uh, the next morning, Andrew rang and said, what, were you okay last night? I heard you call out my name and I prayed for you. Only God can make those sort of moves. Only God can make that happen. That is not a normal thing. I don't think you've, you've ever said that to me. Uh, she has prayed for me, of course. But never to the point, you know, I heard your voice calling out. You know, it's in a foreign country. Um, and and it's, it's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? prompting someone to pray, to make those supernatural things happen. So for us, we need to hold firm to the truth. We don't want to be swayed by the father of lies. We want the God of truth, of truth, the God of light. We do need to fight temptation, that's for another evening. We do need to depend on God's resources. Christ has defeated Satan. That's the good news. He's, 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 he's been defeated. But it's this kind of campaign that we're in that's it's all finishing up and it's all going to be part of God's plans and purposes. And Christ, when he's defeated Satan, he, he, he knows what it was like to be tempted. The Bible says he was tempted in every way. And he sympathises with you when you're tempted. And he strengthens you when you're tempted. So be encouraged. This battle will not go on forever. He uh, will bring it to an end. And in the meantime, we serve and you serve a forgiving God. And when we pray... When you pray for each other, remember, we are in a hostile environment. You know, we do think evangelism should be easy, uh, or everything we do should be easy, or maybe there shouldn't be any issues, but there are issues. There are people that will come against us. There will be devil worshippers. It's hard for us to believe that, but they pray against the church. So the Christians have got to be praying. They've got to be praying. I read somewhere, I think it was in a Neil Anderson book, who wrote, he wrote the uh, Freedom in Christ um, uh, course, but there's a separate book that he wrote, and he said the Satanists, it's three o'clock in the morning that's when they pray against the church, and I get woken up a lot at three o'clock in the morning so I give up now, I'll just start praying um, but don't think they're not, because they are they are, and we're in that battle so, we're in a hostile environment recognise it, don't be scared by it because Christ's name is above all names. Jesus' name is above all names. He's dealt with it on the cross. We're part of the mopping up campaign, but it is hostile. And we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be um, don't get discouraged because of that. That is the world we live in. We're not home yet. So pray for strength and protection. Pray for wisdom and discernment. Pray for others. Pray for each other. Pray in faith. And how we live, just be aware of the devil, but don't see him in everything. You know, if I cut my hand in a washing-up bowl, I don't immediately say I'm being attacked. But you kind of know spiritually uh, when you are. If you do feel attacked, don't deal with him directly, because you cannot come in your own name. You refer him to your elder brother, Jesus, and you come in his name, and you, you rebuke him in the name of Jesus. That's the name that can rebuke him. I can't. Ian can't, but Jesus can. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. 
We're coming in the name of Jesus. And as we pray, so we are to live, to avoid in evil the actions, the thoughts, the words that he loves to tempt us with. And remember, you're not alone. Don't be isolated. You're part of the body of Christ. Be aware of others that might be struggling. Prayer and action together. Remember, we can be the answer to somebody else's prayer. Ultimately, uh, the battle does belong to the Lord, which we're, we're going to sing later. But you have your part to play. I, I, I hate speaking about him. I think it gets too much press. And sometimes it gets too much press among Christians. Um, I'd much rather say the name Jesus more than I would devil. Uh, but we have to tackle this. And I don't want you to be um, scared. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I'm not sure I agree with this, he said once, if you get demonic influence, it's like you get a fly on your arm and just swat him off. I'm not sure it is that easy. Um, but we, you, you do claim the name of Jesus. And uh, he is the name above all names. And when we think about God and devil, you know, if God is all of this, you know, he's, he's nothing. He is nothing. And we can declare that in the name of Jesus. He is nothing. His name is not above all names. Only one. Only one. He will bring victory. He's brought victory and we'll see it in its completion one day. In the meantime, we'll stand as Christians. Stand firm then with the full armour of God. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to lead in communion. It'll be a good time uh, to lead communion after uh, speaking about such a subject. Uh, but if you're struggling with anything in that regard, please see us after. We'll pray with you. Uh, struggling with doubt or even your... your uh, identity. Don't, don't be discouraged because that's the devil's ploy. He loves that. Uh, but don't be isolated and we'll pray for you uh, as well. Everybody suffers from that sometime. Uh, so don't worry. But let me pray. Well, we thank you for your word. We don't really like speaking about Satan, yet you confronted him again and again. And he actually recognised your authority. He knew your word. He used it to try and come against you but you used the word back at him. I pray, Lord, this church would be uh, a, a, an honest follower of your living word, that we wouldn't shy away from it, even though the temptation, sometimes we want to water it down, make things easy, but we realise we're in a hostile environment and you are truth and he is the father of lies. As we come to communion now, we thank you for the bread and the wine and what it represents, your body and blood. I pray, Lord, now, uh, just in the silence, we bring our own prayers before you, put right some things that we need put in right before you, but not that we're condemned, which we know we come from him, but because you long to forgive us and set us free from any guilt or shame. So in these moments, Lord, we offer up our prayers. We pray that you'd hear them. And uh, get our hearts and our bodies and our minds, our spirit ready to receive communion, a table that we've been invited to, because we can, not because we've earned it, but because we've accepted that free gift from you.